killing New Yorkers because we have this, I call it a mill, of churning people out of the academy after two or three years. They move on to police and fire or other agencies, even sanitation, because uh, it's better paying. We really have to think about what would it actually look like for 100% of teachers or 90% of teachers to take that action. Florida law be darned. And what, what was the ticket for? Oh, it's in my pocket. Um, public nuisance. Wow. By keeping a sprawling camp of trash and hazardous material and the under the Russell Street Bridge. That's what they gave us. They retaliated against the uh, union leadership all the way up to and including firing Joe Aveca, our chief steward. So that's why we're here today. I don't mean the anarchy of people who wear black or carry red flags or black flags or whatever. I mean the anarchy of judges and people in Congress and administrators of these agencies who think this is labor, so some different rules can apply. Hey, you're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On this week's show, Work Bites reveals that the caring economy is on life support. Abby Lawler talks about her book, Rules to Win by Power and Participation in Union Negotiations on the PCTA Fire Podcast. Voice of the People interviews Serena, who was evicted from the encampment under the Russell Street Bridge in Missoula, Montana. From Labor Radio on WORT, CUNA mutual workers vote to extend their strike. And in our final segment, Ahmed White connects themes from his new book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, to modern-day labor struggles on the Labor Exchange podcast. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, where we give you highlights from just a few of the nearly 200 labor radio and podcast shows across the country. Here's the show. New York and New Jersey, as well as a great world beyond. This is Work Bites Bob Henley at Stuck Nation because we surely are. Now, this morning we're going to look at how the lack of proper health care staffing is undermining the caring economy here in New York City, resulting in unnecessary human suffering and degrading the quality of health care as the price of that care continues to explode. And it's going to Wall Street. We'll speak with Vincent Farrelly, president of DC 37 Local 3621, which represents the city's FDNY EMS officers about the chronic understaffing and undervaluing services members provide the entire city 24-7, often a great personal risk to themselves. Good morning, Vinny. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for having me on your show again. So listen, it's been in the news right now, of course, with the tragedy that played out. So I want to ask you, about this, doesn't this go back decades, this question of the undomiciled and the mental health crisis to when the state of New York greatly reduced the number of beds it had for the mentally ill? And hasn't this all been compounded by the lack of affordable housing for the most at-risk population? And there's just no comprehensive long-term response in terms of what I mentioned in the opening about the caring economy. Now, what I want to ask you is that I'm sure during COVID that a lot of these systems that would be clinics 
took a hit and closed. Isn't that another part of the dislocation that whatever institutions we had took a hit and closed up during COVID, leaving you folks really the entire society exposed? And that's where we are now, this body blow from COVID. 100%. Yeah. That, and that's where we saw the explosion happening during COVID because, as you said, a lot of these institutions closed up and the focus was generally on COVID. And, uh, and we saw, look, tents were put outside of hospitals and stuff to, to address the need for space and rooms and beds for people with COVID that were dying of COVID. And so the mental health, me- mentally ill were taken out and those beds were given to the more serious, life-threatening COVID patients. And this is why we saw the explosion of the mental health or the EDPs, we call them, Mostly just start people out in the street, and we still haven't seen them getting taken back or anything being done to take them back. I know there we started a pilot program under Mayor right. de Blasio for EMS to respond without police with a social worker. Again, it's still very small in relative to the amount of call volume we get and the units we have out there. There was plans for the Adams administration to expand the program. But there's been a problem. We are short-staffed in EMS. We have many people resigning every week, and it's not being addressed properly. And matter of fact, just in recently in negotiations with Office of Labor Relations in the city, and as namely Sanford Cohen, we had they, they walked out on us and failure to negotiate properly in good faith. And now that's created more problems for uh, having people who will be promoted into a position for these mental health units. And now we're into a situation where no agreements are made and people are hesitant to want to join those units because they don't know what the city is going to truly have them do. Mm. You talk about that really abusive system, which means that we just don't have the experience. I know that there's a lot of research, peer-reviewed research, that says it takes six years to really have great chops as a street medic to be able to save people's lives, say, in a critical heart event. A hundred percent, Yes. The studies have shown after six years, there is a significant increase in patient outcomes, positive patient outcomes, so increase in the survival rate of cardiac arrest, and due to the experience of the EMT or paramedic of six or more years. Unfortunately, in New York City, we are literally killing New Yorkers because we have this, I call it a mill, of churning people out of the academy, and after two or three years, they move on to police and fire or other agents, even sanitation, because it's better paying, it's a better work environment, they get more resources and more support. Where in EMS, it's a system that is not well supported. It, the pay is very low. A top paid EMT reaches $58,000 a year, compared to a firefighter who will be at close to 90000 or mm. a police officer, especially now with the new contract, they're over $100,000 a year. So, you know, obviously you see a person that may love the job of emergency medicine, and want to stay here, but when they want to come to a point where they want to raise a family, you look at your salary and say, if I'm going to stay in first responder as a profession, I'm going to do much better on getting a salary like that to support my family than staying in EMS. Not That's to mention, I think you guys have drilled into me over the years. We've been doing this a while now, Vinny. Like, they have unlimited sick time. You understand? That's this is crazy. Thing. EMTs yeah. who are in the front lines of the pandemic have, what, 13 days? More scarcity. 12 days. 12 days a year we get and of sick leave. And you're right, during the pandemic, it really came to a problem for the city because people were falling off payroll left and right. And don't forget, when you fall off payroll, you not only lose your paycheck, you lose your health insurance. So when you're sick and need it the most, that's when you lose it. And so I looked at it that way and I say, this is like a real scam because when I need my health insurance the most, I'm going to lose it because I'm coming off payroll. During the pandemic, the city had to come, they had no choice but to come out with excuse time 
if you had COVID, because they knew that if they didn't do that, it would have more than half the service would be off payroll. Don't give up the fight. Hey guys, welcome back to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm Brennan Pickett. I'm the FEA Director and Fire Co-Chair here at the Janellis Classroom Teachers Association. I'm Philip Belcastro, Fire Co-Chair at PCTA. I'm Dr. Anna Margiata. I am an AP Chemistry teacher at St. Kate High School. And I'm Abby Lawler. I'm a former union organizer and research intern, labor lawyer, and the co-author with Jane McAlevey of Rules to Win by Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. And Abby is calling us all the way from Seattle. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Of course, I'm really happy to be here. So this this idea of getting as much participation at the ground level, you know, as possible, and then thinking about that chapter about the New Jersey Teachers Union, um, as somebody all the way on the other coast, as somebody who has so much experience, um, what is your view on just what is happening to Florida right now? How do you guys see it? Yeah, and I should say, too, part of my my early organizing with Unite Here was in South Florida. So I was in Florida from wow. 2012 to 2014, um, organizing non-union casino workers and had the feeling then that, you know, the Rick Scott days, that that, that seemed like rock bottom. And now to see it just continue to get worse, I think, is... Yeah, what's, what's after um, rock bottom? The elevator keeps going down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm just, it's just like so so troubling and maddening for, you know, my friends and coworkers and folks that I know in Florida and, and you all as classroom teachers, just feels like you are kind of at the heart of every important battle that's happening right now. Um, I think it is exciting to see you all organizing and, and thinking about what it looks like to, to stand up and fight back and, and the really important role that strong unions have to play in that. My question is when, when we're kind of uh, we're kind of neutered with away from our, our best tool, like a union, an organization's best tool. We can't really do the same way that some of the examples in your book, um, kind of, you know, tout and everybody knows that the teaching profession is sort of built on burnout. It's sort of built on, um, just, just giving us more and more responsibilities where there's so many of us who, who don't ever really clock out. You know, we have our hours, we have our contract hours when we're in the classroom and we're in meetings, but there's so much that happens planning wise and, and meeting wise and phone call wise and all this other stuff that a lot of us just don't have the energy to continue organizing or we don't have the ability, you know, whether it's health related or childcare related or transportation related, you know, it just happens that the, the three of us and some of the other people who appeared on the podcast with us do have that privilege to, to continue the fight and to do things like this. So how do you, how do you spark that passion? You know, that passion leads to passion, leads to passion from the ground up. How do you do that among a, a population in this public workforce that is, that is built on burnout? It relies on burnout. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I, I really believe from my time organizing is that, you know, organizing is a necessity, right? It's not a privilege. It's, it's what we need to be doing in order to build the lives that we want and and fight back against all of these attacks that that we're facing. So, and that's a a hard thing and a hard ask to make of the people around us. But um, you know, I was listening to your episode with Mike Gandolfo about oh, yeah. about your past collective bargaining, right? And he said, if you have a hundred percent strike, 
like they're not going to take your pension away. They're not going to fire all the teachers. And and what's possible is in part a function of your participation, right? Or, or in, I would argue, a, a large degree uh, a function of your participation. And so I think we really have to think about what would it actually look like for 100% of teachers or 90% of teachers to take that action, Florida law be darned, um, yeah. right, to 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 make that choice and to do it together. And that's going to take a bunch of, you know, that's not just going to be sort of the younger teachers who maybe feel like they have a little bit less to lose. That's going to take the most senior folks. That's going to take everybody choosing to take that risk together, choosing to take that step together. And um, so I think the the kind of tools and techniques that Jane lays out are no shortcuts that we're trying to uh, argue for in the book is really to get unions to that place of, um, you know, we're able to have hard conversations about, yeah, there's a lot at stake for people individually. This is really hard. This takes time away from your kids and your family, but to have those conversations and to build to a place where realistically 90% of folks, a hundred percent of folks, um, would be able to take action together. So I think that's one thing I would say just in terms of like, what to do if there's a legal prohibition on striking or really severe consequences for striking that are a function of state law. Ultimately, that that's a political question, right? If folks are actually going to face those consequences and the politics of that question are are totally dictated by the level of participation and also broader public support. Uh, Abby, anything else you'd like to add before we kind of end here? Um, no, it's just been like, great to be with you all. Thanks so much for turning me on. All right. And... Thanks for listening to the Peace Bio Podcast. I'm Brennan. I'm Philip. And Dr. Anna. And I'm Abby. All righty. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Peace out, guys. Bye. Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99% for June 3rd, 2023. And you're listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 1015kfgm no punctuation dot org yeah well as i mentioned already the encampment of unhoused missoula residents under the south side of the russell street bridge was dispersed by missoula police on a june 1st sweep and i documented this okay so tell me again your name serena serena and um and you've been a resident of the the encampment underneath the Russell Street Bridge, right? Yes, I have. How how long have you been here? Like a month and a half. Okay. And uh, you were telling me you're from Washington State. Yes. Okay. And how did you make it to Missoula? Um, I decided because I was born here. I get my 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 life back together, like birth certificate and like you know social security and stuff like that. Like, um, but it was more of like trying to have survival mode to like I, I couldn't have any resources anywhere else because it, it was all about due to where I was born and to like not just that like um I just got stranded here and and um family knows where I'm at so I'm safe and so I, I stood around I stuck around and um and they they know where I'm at okay. so I'm safe and and so what happened here is that last night, well, actually it was a few days ago, there was some notice by the police that you had to evict, right? Yeah. And then last night the police came by again? Yes. 
And what what did they do? Um, they kind of like, you know, I I think it's harassing when you like come and to to the point where like you're you're just telling someone like you have to do something or else, you know, like I I mean like that that's considered a threat, like you know, um, trying to like throw our stuff away when when we can have time to you know get it all up and um going and they 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 put the force on it and um it was inappropriate it was inappropriate to the way they came to us and uh they gave people tickets they gave you a ticket right yes and what what was the ticket for oh it's in my pocket um public nuisance By keeping a sprawling camp of trash and hazardous material and the under the Russell Street Bridge. That's what they gave us. How is it that, um, it, 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 you know, rents in Missoula obviously are sky high? Is, is, that, is that why you're, I, I mean, I, if, if you were to choose, you wouldn't be choosing to live under the Russell Street Bridge, right? Yes. And so what, what is it that is, uh, help, help our listeners understand how is it that you're, you're, uh, you're here? Well, it's not by choice. It's by, you know, the struggle and it's by to the people that need the help and, and want the help and, and the people that want the help and that are struggling, they, they end up in places like this because they're like, you know, they're, they're going through a lot and. And when they're expected to be wanting some or something or, or needing something, it's like, you know, like it, it takes time. Time comes and comes comes and goes and comes by. And um, it just, you, you gotta, you know, realize that you're gonna end up in a predicament like this. So what else, what else would you like to say to listeners to help them understand that we might be able to uh, avoid this kind of clearance in the future? Um, being more mindful and wise and um, be considerate and um, just try to um, be expected to not be expected. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Please join us every week and Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. Reporting for WORT Labor Radio, I'm Abigail Levins. CUNA mutual workers who have been on strike since last Friday voted Wednesday to extend the strike to June. I spoke with Sarah Larson, who is part of the bargaining committee, and she explained why the strike started in the first place. They are not bargaining in good faith. Uh, They have uh, committed several violations of federal labor law so that we've had to file unfair labor practices against them. They uh, have been moving at a snail's pace um, on members' core priorities. And Larson said that even when the union has tried to protest these conditions, the company has not listened and even taken anti-union action. And they retaliated against the uh, union leadership all the way up to and including firing Joe Aveca, our chief steward. So that's why we're here today. 
Even though the workers have been on strike for a week now, the company is still not negotiating. Larson said that is why workers voted 95% on Wednesday to extend the strike. We just weren't seeing the kind of movement that we need in order to to uh, uh, not extend it, right? Like, uh, so uh, this is exactly what needs to happen in order to put enough pressure on the company to get them to start taking us seriously. Larson said union members are committed to seeing this through and are determined not to back down. Yeah, energy has remained high. Uh, membership is, is committed to seeing this through. And Joel Bryan, a member of OPEIU 39, said the workers have a lot of hope for the future. Um, the energy is really amazing. People are seeing seeing the things work, you know. We're seeing the company start to really struggle without us. Larson added that this is the biggest the union has ever been. The process of bargaining this new contract has united membership in a way that we've never seen. Uh, Membership is stronger now than it's ever been, and they are not going to back down until we get a fair contract. So we are in it to win it. Union members have been out from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. in different shifts, trying to make as much noise as they can. And Brian said there has been a lot of support from the community. The community has been super positive. You know, we have people, you know, they're sending food, they're, they're sharing the word, right? They met with CUNA Mutual on Wednesday, and according to Larson, there was no movement or counterproposals, even though the company claimed they had tried to bargain. There are no more meetings scheduled until May 30th. Reporting for WORT Labor Radio, I'm Abigail Levins. Fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. The Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild, Local 37074. On today's episode, we wrap up our conversation with CU Law Professor Ahmed White on his book, Under the Iron Heel, about the industrial workers of the world and the oppression their members faced. The IWW was a radical union that organized workers in train camps, domestic work, the lumber and agricultural industries, among others. So let's join the conversation with CU Law Professor Ahmed White on his book, Under the Iron Heel. I do want to ask you again about something that's more modern in the labor movement, because some of the focus of your studies are on the rule of law as it relates to labor. So during the recent Starbucks congressional hearing, Senator Cassidy accused the NLRB of not following the rule of law currently and favoring unions. While I will say I came to the same conclusion about the former general counsel of the NLRB, Peter Robb, a Trump appointee, who seemed to be unabashedly anti-union in his decision. Can you talk a little bit about the rule of law as it relates to the NLRB and and the NLRB and how that's interacted with all of this? That's a great question. Now, here we're not in the domain of revolution, but the domain of kind of conventional reform politics. But even there, it seems that different rules often apply when you're talking about labor versus other issues like civil rights or the environment or whatever it may be. And I think that's a point that's generally true. So we who who teach or practice labor law can point to all kinds of examples like that, like where did the replacement worker rule come from or or the the, the no-strike injunctions or the injunctions involving no-strike clauses and that whole kind of line of jurisprudence and law that has essentially resurrected injunctions and in the context of, in the, in the face of, say, the Norris-LaGuardia Act, which seems to 
actually prohibit these kinds of injunctions. So there, there's a common theme here, which is that labor is speaking of the rule of law, a domain of relative anarchy. I don't mean the anarchy of people who wear black or carry red flags or black flags or whatever. I mean the anarchy of judges and people in Congress and administrators of these agencies who think this is labor, so some different rules can apply. Now, of course, what's happening now is that now you have a strongly pro-labor administration at the National Labor Relations Board. And all of a sudden, people have discovered how anarchical labor rights can be. But as you allude to, no, you don't have to you, you don't have to have waited for that to find that kind of dynamic. There is a long history of that, and usually it's been to the detriment of workers. And when that was the case, not much was said about it. Now it's, it's a scandal when the law is being bent, it seems, in a way that might benefit workers. I think much of what the current general counsel is doing can be described as rectifying things that have been done over the years. I think this this kind of all started, of, what, 20 years ago with the Bush, the second Bush board being very aggressive in overturning some settled practices and precedents, or at least very aggressive compared to what had been done for decades prior to that. And then, then the Trump board was doubled down on that practice. So I think a lot of what the current board and the general counsel in particular is trying to do can be described as setting things right. And, and one thing that they've done that I think, or that defines, I think, the attitude of the general counsel's office that goes to the point we were just talking about is rectify what I think is a long-standing dynamic that's emerged with labor law. And that is the odd way that labor rights, in any context where labor rights are at odds with other important federal rights, it always was labor rights that had to yield when these matters were litigated. And there was no particularly principled way for justifying that. It was just, that's what happened. Somehow labor rights were at the bottom of the heap here. Again, not because of something in the statutes or in the constitution or anything like that. It was just labor rights conflicted with civil rights. Labor rights yielded. Labor rights conflicted with the paper I wrote, an article I wrote some 20 years ago, the law of mutiny, labor rights had to yield just over and over again. Labor rights had to yield without any attempted compromise or anything of that sort. And that goes to the initial point you raised about the odd way that labor rights have been treated in America. And to the extent the NLRB or the general counsel's office is trying to set that, then I say more power to them. That's just basic fairness. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren. Join us next week at the same time for La Lucha Sigue. The Labor Exchange is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find more great labor radio at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks, Robert. And that does it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a very small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week or so on more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, 
and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru is Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week. Thank you.